You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. I so much enjoy reading so I can share the thoughts of others with you and my wife who so enjoys listening to me share quotes. And today's quote is, the worst thing you can do for those you love is the things they could do and should do for themselves. And that comes from Abraham Lincoln. I think we all know who he is. And you are listening to episode number 221. And my guest today is the courageous and funny Sarah Cavallaro. Sarah is the executive director of Teton Youth and Family Services. Sarah's a mom, a wife, an advocate for kids and families here in Teton County and throughout the state of Wyoming. Sarah's story is one you will want to listen to and certainly share with others. Sarah is inspiring with her bravery for herself and her family. And she also shares with us how she works tirelessly for the families here in our community. Sarah will share her journey of arriving here in Jackson battling cancer with two young kids in the household and why finding the funny in life is so important. Sarah, thank you for joining me here today at the Jackson Hole Connection. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You are welcome. Uh, it's a snowy morning. You are commuting around town in your car. We will jump right into the conversation because you have some appointments to take care of as well. You have a big role that you Phil in this community. Let's start off, Sarah, by you sharing where did you grow up? Where were you born and raised? And how did you land out here in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? I grew up in upstate New York in this little town called Norwich. It was more cows and people. I was a 4-H kid. My dad owned a feed business. And so we got to be part of having a family business and all of that entails. And I went to college in Prescott, Arizona. I went on an outward bound trip when I was 16 for the summer and canoed the West Branch of the Penobscot River in Maine and kind of fell in love with the wilderness. And I was going through a tough time and as every 16 year old usually does. And it really helped me find a place that I felt good and happy and safe. And so I went to college to study to do that. And I got my undergrad in wilderness therapy. And when I left college, I did a bunch of research. There's this group called the Association of Adventure Education. And they had a newsletter that would come out monthly and post jobs and highlight programs. And Red Top Meadows was one of the top ranked wilderness programs in the country. And I was looking at different wilderness programs to go try my degree out in and Red Top came up as one of the options. And I was like, oh, Jackson Hole, that sounds like a good idea. I was in Arizona and I was, didn't miss the grayness, but I missed the winters and the seasons. And so I moved to Jackson. And before I moved to Jackson, I applied to Seabar V and Red Top Meadows. And Red Top was not hiring because they 
had no staff turnover and CBRV hired me to work and that's how I got to Jackson. And so I worked at CBRV for about two and a half years. And then from there, took a little hiatus to Hawaii for about a year and then came back and then worked at Reptop. So what year was that that you first moved out here? 1999. Hey, we're of the same class. It feels like it wasn't that long ago, but it really is. It's like 23 years ago, Sarah. <laughs> when in 99 did you move out here? I was June of 99. Oh, I was August. Okay. And I lived in my truck for four months, moving around from like Shadow Mountain to the rec center mm. park uh, to Mosquito Creek, you mm. know, the dance. And I remember that was a really cool time because everything I owned fit in my truck and including living in my truck with me and my dog. And it was like so easy and simple. And I can't imagine putting all of my belongings in a truck right <laughs> Well, as we age in life and acquire spouses and kids, we get more things that come That's along with that. It's not, our, it's not our fault. It's all the spouses and the kids. That it's definitely not my fault. <laughs> and so now you are connected to Red Top Meadows. You don't work for them directly, but share with us what you are, are now doing. So sometimes I work for them directly. Okay. I am the executive director of Teton Youth and Family Services. And there are times where I need to do childcare to help with staff shortages. So I get to be with the kids on occasion. I was actually just thinking about how maybe next summer I'd like to go and do part of the wilderness trips with the kids because I miss that part of hmm. actually doing, taking them out on the trips. But I run Teton Youth and Family Services. I took over from Bruce Berkland almost exactly four years ago. He retired after 40 years and I got chosen by the board to carry the torch. It's been an interesting but mostly fun, fun journey. Yeah, it's definitely where my heart lies. I feel really, really, really lucky to have such fulfilling work. And, you know, it's just a lot of problem solving and figuring out how to take the parts and pieces and fit them together to make the, the services available to kids. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm, I want to learn more about Teton Youth and Family Services, but I also would like for you to share before we get into that, a pretty major life-changing event that you went through yeah. Could you share that with us? Sure. So I got hired in 2018 in December to be the executive director. In January of 2019, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer and which was kind of out of nowhere. She, I went home to visit her. She's in upstate New York still and went home to visit her. And she, I was like, I should probably have a mammogram. I was 43 years old, but that's not indicated typically for my age. And so I came back to Jackson. I went and visited her mid-February and came back to Jackson. And on my birthday, I was like, oh, I'm going to go have a mammogram every year on my birthday. So I remember. And so I went in on February 28th to go have my mammogram. And a week later, I found out I had early stage breast cancer, which was fairly shocking because it was, I mean, I think it's fairly shocking anytime you find that out, but I was not in my sphere of things that could happen. What happened next was a bunch of testing and it was very, very, it was like the end of a ballpoint pen, the size of it and very deep, like almost near my chest wall. And so it was talked about, you know, what are the options? And I decided to go with a double mastectomy and I have two kids and I felt 
like I was 43 and really young and I didn't want to be worrying about this for the rest of my life, even though you do kind of worry about it for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, I had the double mastectomy at the end of April and then they did some genetic testing on the tumors, which is if anyone's gone through cancer treatment, you go down this rabbit hole of crazy and kind of find all these different paths, but they have an incredible amount of research on, you know, you're this age, you've got this situation, this is what's supposed to happen next. And so they did the genetic testing and what was supposed to happen next is that I was supposed to have chemo. And I thought it was going to be just, you get a mastectomy and I can move on with my life because it was kind of preventative. Well, and then I got to have chemo for four months and it was the kind of chemo that's like the nuclear bomb chemo where they they basically said, we're going to try and kill everything in your body four times and then you should probably be good. <laughs> so mm. I did that. It was a very strange, surreal experience. I had a four-year-old and a seven-year-old at the time. And, you know, I lost my hair in like a week and a half after the first treatment. And my son was like, you're not my mom. I don't want to touch you. You know, like he was really scared and it was just one of those times where it was like, wow, this is like a really crazy change of, you know, where my perspectives and priorities are. So time went on. I had reconstruction that November and then they said, you should be good to go now. And so I took this pill that was supposed to block estrogen because this tumor was like eating estrogen essentially and feeding on it. And so they wanted to block the estrogen so we did that and I'd go back every six months and get checked in. And a year ago in January, the first week of January, I went in because I had found this like weird lump and I was like, this can't be anything bad because I had a double mastectomy and I found this lump, but I thought it, I was like, it's probably scar tissue. It's probably, you know, trying to not go off the cliff. Luckily, Carrie Carr is an oncology nurse at St. John's and she's also a friend of mine and I was able to text her and she was like come in tomorrow <laughs> and so I came in the next day and then I went it was almost like the exact same process happened again as I got a mammogram that suddenly I had to go get a MRI and a biopsy and I, it, I just freaked out turns out I had cancer again it was in the same spot they think that they didn't because the first time the cancer is so close to my chest wall. They thought they had clean margins, but perhaps they didn't. Anyway, I had to go back to Huntsman. I had surgery again February of, la of this past year. And then they wanted me to do radiation. So I went, my sister lives in Ogden. So I went and moved down to Ogden with my sister for a month and then had, you know, a month of radiation and every single day, which was weird. And then I came home and I decided to have a hysterectomy as well because the estrogen piece of the puzzle and all of this is a big factor of it coming back. And I just was ready to not do this again. Mm -hmm. um, so I had that in April and then by mid-June, I was back on my feet and here I am. I'm cancer free, but I think the second time around, I've kind of become a little bit more aware of it's not gone. You know, like it's, you can never say forever. I got to just live in the moment and live in the gray because it could come back next week. And isn't it great that we have so much research on breast cancer and it's like the most research treatable form of cancer. So I'm, I got, as I've heard, I got a good form of cancer. Hmm. So brave, Sarah. 
Well, you know, Stephanie, people say that, but you just show up. It's not brave. Like I've I've said, well, what was I going to do? Lay down and die? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's not really my style. You know, you just, it's, it was very, very scary every day. But I will say that the Huntsman Center gave me incredible amount of hope and confidence that I was going to be okay. So having that level of care, I feel very, very lucky. I went to Huntsman the first time and I, I remember saying like, did someone pay them off or know that I was coming down here and like give someone a tip or extra money to be super nice to me and like arrange all the things. It was just an incredible medical experience where I showed up for the first appointment and they had already scheduled five more appointments during that day to do biopsies and MRIs and all the things. So they had like, they knew the program and had it all scheduled and I didn't have to come back eight times. And it was really, I feel very fortunate that we had that, that kind of healthcare coverage to be able to go through this because they made it. I had the the head of oncology for Huntsman called me at eight o'clock at night one night. And I was like, that's above and beyond any kind of, you know, regular service. They're a phenomenal, phenomenal facility there. I have my Wyoming dad, he had pancreatic cancer and was down there and the treatment that he received and they come up here. Yeah. The doctor. Yeah. I got to have chemo here. Like that was huge. I didn't have to leave like radiation was hard to leave the kids for a month but I had to be down there and it, it's amazing that we I can do my checkups here and not have to keep going to Salt Lake. Well Sarah I said you're brave and you you said well what else am I going to do? I mean you're brave, you're a fighter. You you were brave to fight and say I'm not going to lie down. You didn't not allow it to overcome you and I'm also a really stubborn human so <laughs> part of it but you sharing this as well can help other people realize how important it is to receive that testing, the screening. Oh. Yeah, you know, I It was like, just a whim for you to say. And it was an accident that they found it. What they were looking for the first time when they were doing the biopsy was not what they found. Like what they were biopsying right next to it was the cancer. So they were like, oh, I think we'll just biopsy this too. And it was like, thank God. And they're just the talent that happened here, the talent that happened at Huntsman. I feel very, very, very lucky that mm-hmm. I was where I where I was living where I was to be able to get the incredible treatment. Well, you started your story by sharing about your mom going through through cancer. How can you share with us how is your mom doing? Yeah, she's fine. She had a lumpectomy and then she didn't need any radiation or chemo. And, you know, honestly, the reason why I went in last January is because in the beginning of December, I had two really close friends get diagnosed with breast cancer. And then a week later, my mom was going in for a regular visit. She's like, oh, they found another lump. They're going to have to do a biopsy. And I was like, I can't avoid doing this anymore. Like, I can't pretend that this is scar tissue anymore. I need to go in because mm-hmm. I had kind of, I had noticed it at Thanksgiving. So thank the whatever is bigger than us for putting those steps in my life, because I think that, you know, there are no coincidences. And I feel lucky that my mom, my, I joke with my mom that she probably saved my life by getting cancer <laughs> because I've I wouldn't, they'd, you know, at the time it was like, go get a mammogram when you're 50. And then during my cancer treatment, they changed it to 45. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no harm in getting 
a mammogram. It's not a, it's not that big a deal, but the res, you know, not doing it is a big deal. And not to take away from women and mammograms, but for men, they need to do self checks or learn how to do a self check for testicular cancer as well. It is real. It is out there. I have a friend who passed away from it. I have another friend, her husband did get checked because of what he was, our friend was going through and they found testicular cancer in him and he, he is a survivor in that. So for men who are listening, remember that there is testicular cancer, make sure you get checked as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one of those things, like, I think there's some shame around like, oh God, I don't want to talk about my boobs or I don't want to talk about my testicles, but it's mm -hmm. like, those things can kill you if you don't, if you just want to avoid and I, it's there should be no shame there should be like an acknowledgement that this happens way more than i think anyone real going to huntsman i was like oh my god there's so many people there's so many people that are going through this right now like made me feel less lonely also was kind of sad because i knew i was going to be okay and there was a lot of people, a lot of really hurt soldiers out there that i know probably didn't make it well you speaking out today and reaching this audience are helping break down the barriers of talking about boobs and testicles. I mean, I have so much to say about that, but I'll keep it to myself. <laughs> uh, I, I would love to hear it on another day. About it, you know, when I decided to, I found out I had cancer, like literally a week and a half before I was supposed to go on spring break to Mexico and changed our trip. So I actually went to Huntsman the day before we flew to Mexico and we got to Mexico and we were with another group of friends and we turned it into like, we said we were doing research on the beach of like what my new boobs would look like. Like, I feel like you got to find the funny and stuff. And if you don't, it gets heavier. And I think it's healing to be able to laugh at like, I have fake boobs now. I never really thought that that would be part of my story, but that's the real thing. Fake boobs have a purpose. They have a purpose. <laughs> That's not just aesthetics. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And how did your your kids come out of going through your cancer? Because it's not just you. It's right. your, your kids. So the first time, you know, we were all kind of in the Wild West rodeo of this because it was new. My dad and stepmom, my family and my sister, like, my family rallied and were awesome and, you know, like came to stay with the kids while I was in Salt Lake and recovering because I didn't come home after I had the mastectomy. It was a lot of, you know, yucky stuff that they didn't need to be more scared. So mm -hmm. I stayed for about a month to recover from that. And so we worked through the first time. The second time, that was really, really hard. My son was seven, my daughter's 11. So it was like, we actually got them involved in therapy because there's a lot of anxiety happening. A lot of, you know, they were acting out in their own ways, not in bad, not terrible, but it was, you could tell that there was major stress happening for them. And so we got them in with each of them had a therapist and the therapists taught, were awesome. They were, our, they were actually our first shield therapist, which I asked to do that because I knew who they were and I knew how amazing therapists they were. <laughs> I was using our own services because I knew that that program, the program worked. And what the, type of program did you call it? It's the Hirschfield Center. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. One of our 
therapist is an art therapist. The other one, you know, does EMDR. They're both just phenomenal people. And the kids, you know, came to my office a lot. So the therapy piece of working with them felt more comfortable. And they, you know, they worked with them weekly for a while. And now we're kind of six weeks to every two months just to check in. But I really wanted the kids to have a resource because I knew that Andy and I had our plates full and I wanted them to feel like they had their person that was outside of Andy and I trying to parent them, but they had someone to go to to talk about hard things and be able to talk to us, talk to someone about how to talk to us about their feelings. And it really, really from February until pretty much when school came out, they were regular, you know, regularly going to therapy. And I think it helped them a ton make it through a really, really rugged time and who knows what comes out when they're adults and I probably messed it up somehow but we tried to give them give them some supports that were outside of our house or family that's important parents or people want to bury it versus getting help and I've had several people on the podcast and we've talked about mental health and it's well we talk about our physical health people talk about that very openly or their diet health. But when it comes to mental health, it's as though that it, that side of it gets buried or there is the social stigmatism of yep. saying, I go see a therapist. So I've seen a therapist more years of my life than I haven't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I I believe in our product that we're mm-hmm. selling YFS. So I feel like it's pretty important for me to practice what I preach and not that I have it all figured out at all. I think the older I get, the more I realize how much more help I could use. But I think it's really important to have, whether or not you're continually working with the therapist, just knowing that you have a resource that you can turn to if the world flips upside down someday. Well, it did a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it did. Here's it. Well, with COVID, I mean, for, oh, every, yeah. for a lot of people in that oh, side of things. But, yeah. you know, yeah, I've, I've been there before with yeah. therapy and figuring out life with parents and growing up and yeah, growing up's hard. Not like there's not a book that's like here's how you do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, there's there's books, but there's not really no. we're people. There's no instruction manual for people. Yeah, um, there's thoughts and ideas, but which is the world that you work in, being yep. at you know the executive director at Teton Youth and Family Services. Is there a connection? between Teton Youth and Family Services and Red Top is? Teton Youth and Family Services is the umbrella nonprofit for Her Shield Center for Children, the Van Vleck Group Home and Crisis Shelter, and Red Top Meadows. So they're all under Teton Youth and Family They're all under there. And yeah. how many kids at one time are you all servicing? Depends. We, we serve over 800 kids and family members every year. So when we work with a kid, Say they're in our group home, we also provide therapeutic services for the family. Try to look at it holistically and not there's the the kid that's in our program isn't the identified patient. It's the whole family it needs support. And so we try to look at it beyond just the kid. And so we serve different numbers of kids and families in our programs and but different levels. So Hershield Center is really, I call it our prevention program. So as we go up to Red Top. We start at Hershield. The Hershield Center is the cheapest. It's outpatient. It serves the most kids and family members. It's like probably the, le- 
the least restrictive, I guess. And then you move into our group home and crisis shelter, and that's a residential placement for kids, but it's in their community. We send kids home. So we try, it's kind of the next step. And then Red Top is kids have been, are removed from their families for a variety of reasons, but they live and go to school at Red Top. So we try to service everyone at the Hirschfield level. That's not always something we can do because the needs might be greater, but we have levels of care that are in place so that we're not just jumping to the highest level of care. And the group home is what? What's the name of that? Man Black House. Man Black House. When you talk about the whole process and how do you get the parents to join in? Because it's not just the kid that's the patient, it's the whole family. Some cases are more successful than others. I think the most success we have is when the whole family participates. This is not about identifying one person as being bad or wrong. This is about helping a family figure out how to function different. And the families that participate and learn new skills and change old behaviors are the ones that we see as a success and as change happens. So it's the ones where we're really struggling for parents to get involved, where the parents don't, you know, necessarily believe that they have a role in it. That's that's harder. But probably more prevalent. And our job is to help the kid. You know, I say that we're a kid-centered organization, meaning the kid's needs come first. But we've had situations where, you know, divorced parents were working with the kid and they have divorced parents and the parents want support for what they're doing. And we look to the kid and say, what do you need? Because a lot of times it's very easy to defer to the adult and not listen to the kids. And our job is to make sure the kids have a voice and figure out how to incorporate the whole family structure in that. I could certainly see where kids' needs get pushed aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they have limited rights and they're reliant upon adults to take care of them for mm-hmm. food, clothing, and safety. And when they don't necessarily have the resources to be independent, but they do have, you know, I, I, someone told me once when I had my daughter, she was, she's my first, someone told me in the hospital, or maybe, I don't know what it was, but it was very early on. They were like, how you can best approach having your, cause I was, you know, seeking parent advice. How you can best approach your daughter is consider her human now and that she has needs and opinions and wants. And she's trying to tell you that. And you need to show her respect even as a one month old. And so I took that very seriously. And I remember like changing Callie's diaper and being like talking to her about like what was happening. And instead of like, they were like, a lot of people do things to kids versus do things with kids. And so I was, I really took whatever, I don't even know who told me what that, who, what that was, but it was a really helpful piece. And they have thoughts and feelings that are valid. I don't care what age they are. They could be an infant, but they, their thoughts and feelings are real and valid for them right now. And regardless of our judgments of if they're sane or not, their thoughts and feelings that they're experiencing and we need to figure we need to respect that and that's something that I've held as a parent because I believe that our kids my kids deserve respect and it's very easy for me to not listen to them don't get me wrong like I am not a perfectionist in the parenting department at all (laughs) many many times where I've looked at someone I'm like I'm in this business and I'm having this meltdown yeah (laughs) it happens to everyone but that's something that I 
do kind of a core belief that I developed as having a kid, which I then translate to the kids that we serve, is that they deserve to be respected and treated as having their own thoughts and feelings and given respect to have those. Sarah, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and we're going to come back and talk more about Teton Youth and Family Services. Sounds good. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Sarah, welcome back. We are just talking about the role that Teton Youth and Family Services, you guys have several different programs that you offer here in the community. And you even said, hey, you're in this business and you're not a perfect parent. Nobody's a perfect person. And your kids still have meltdowns. I mean, we have them regularly in our household. Certainly had one last night when reading with my youngest. He says, I'm not a good reader. And he's, he's getting help reading at school. And it is helping him so much. He's becoming such a stronger reader, but he'll still still take this position. I'm not a strong reader. And you are, you are a strong reader. You're just at your level and you keep practicing and you'll be at a different level, but he still has that meltdown yep. and it's there. It happens to us all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how many times have I melted down because I don't think I'm good in this area or I feel like I did something wrong in the different area. I just have figured out how to self-regulate so I'm not like throwing books and stuff. <laughs> that's, that's the goal is to teach kids how to regulate how they have emotions, like have the emotions, but let's not be destructive about it. And nowadays, compared with where we are now and in this community, I mean, people look at Jackson Hole as this beautiful, amazing community, but there's the real world world stuff that goes on. I mean, look, Van Vleck was started, the Van Vleck house was started when? It was 1977. So Van Vleck house started, this is the story behind Van Vleck house. So the Van Vleck family, we're known as a family in the community, as a family that will take wayward wanderers and meaning you know, if someone had to go to the hospital and they couldn't make it back home and their horse and buggy or whatever older form of transportation was happening, the Van Black family would be a resource to be able to go stay with them. They'd feed you, they'd give you a bed to sleep in, and it was kind of an all or welcome feeling. And so when we started TYFS and Van Black House was the first program, we were a drop-in center for youth where basically kids could go if they were homeless, if they were going through crisis. So it started as in the same light of where kids that were wayward scragglers could go. Yes. Mm-hmm. And from there, you know, we developed into a crisis shelter group home. Then we did Red Top and then Hirschfield Center came online about 2003. And when was Red Top started? Mm, I feel like it's 1982. Okay. So putting this all into context, 
1977, there were still a lot of the roads in here in Jackson, Teton County that weren't even paved. Many of them weren't even, didn't have names on them back then. And we were still probably one of the poorest counties, but the community saw a need. Yes. But even for such a small community, there was still a need for kids in crisis or such as you said, is mm-hmm. homeless. So it's always been there. Yes. We've changed over the years because the needs have changed. And mm-hmm. I think COVID has been a really fast change. We've had to fast track some changes in terms of the kids that we're serving are different than the kids we were serving years ago. And how do we best serve them with these different needs? And I think I give a ton of credit to our staff for being flexible and being able to take a look at that. And, you know, the whole world of COVID has created so many strange problems that I did not anticipate. The day COVID happened or shut everything down was March 17th. And I had a board meeting on March 17th that went virtual. And at the board meeting, we were supposed to approve this like five-year-long planning process of starting capital campaign to make our facilities, you know, more safe, better. We have old facilities. Anyway, the board, the board and I were like, nope, that's not happening. I need to now come up with policies and procedures of how to run a residential program, residential programs when you're in a pandemic. And mm. that was a crazy journey of. I'm not a public health nurse or have any public health education. And I was creating things that like, these are our systems. These are our processes. Nobody like helped us with that. In fact, the state actually took ours and gave them to all the rest of the shelters around the state because we had actually, they didn't have anything. And so I kind of felt a little weird about that because I was like, don't you maybe want your department of health to look at this? Because I don't know what I'm doing, (laughs) but I mean, it's common sense of like looking at systems and how flows are, which I was like, okay, if you can think of this as a systems thing, COVID is, we can do this. Mm -hmm. And so we implemented all these different systems and we're able to keep kids safe. We never closed and we were there 24 seven for kids, which was the goal. So last fall, our kids have moved from being, I say they express that, you know, when I was working childcare staff or working in direct service in the programs, kids would throw things, they would break windows, they would, you know, punch walls. They would express externally when they were frustrated or going through something. What the change has been over the years and very much drastic, like kind of excelled this movement was kids have now turned internally, meaning they're self-harming, they're suicidal, they're depressed, they're anxious, but they're how that gets expressed is very much quiet. It's secretive. It's very, you know, you can hide it easier. And I prefer broken windows and broken walls because I that's me seeing kids get the energy out and getting the feelings out. When I see kids that are suicidal and self-harming, I'm seeing them turn into themselves. And that's harder. That's harder to monitor. It's harder to keep kids safe because they do things like, like they they were breaking light bulbs in the group home and using them to self farm. Well, our facilities were not built for that. So it became very obvious that our facilities were not meeting the needs of the level of kids that we were serving. So we decided we can't wait anymore for this capital piece. We got to jump off this cliff. And, you know, we had an incredible board 
say, we're going to take this jump. And we developed a $15 million capital campaign, which remodels the group home and crisis shelter and puts our suicidal holding bed in that facility. Right now it's, they're separate and it's very hard to staff. It upgrades a lot of the Hirschfield Center stuff, like windows that don't shut, that don't close windows. And then it rebuilds our residential building out at Red Top. Along with doing some programmatic things like an employee housing stipend program for three years and a maintenance fund, just basically giving us some resources that we've never had before. Um, mm-hmm. I talk about when I first started working for TYFS, I remember there was a, a couple times where the bookkeeper would be like, so maybe don't cash your check today. And I was always like, what? Like, but it, it's always been a, you know, pick up the paper clips and save every dollar we can because we believe in serving kids. And, yeah. and I, I think we've shifted that mentality of money wise, at least from always being in crisis to the board's done a great job of creating a reserve fund of shoring us up financially so that we're not reacting to every small thing we can look at the big picture and look at our big, our facilities and say, wow, if we're going to keep serving kids with this level of need, we need to change. And so that's where this campaign came from. And we put it to the voters on the step ballot, which was great. And we had tremendous support. And it, the way we structured it, it was, is it's a $10 million private part of the campaign and a $5 million public part of the campaign. And why we did that is how TYFS is made up is it's a public-private partnership. And it really, I felt like the campaign represented that, as that we're not looking to one funding source for this. We're looking to the community. And the community meaning donors, the community meaning town and county, and the community meaning the state. So the two, $2 million spent helps the goal towards the $5 million in public funds. I go back to Cheyenne for, I think, the fifth time in a month and a half. I go back. Uh, I just got back two days ago. But I go back again Wednesday, next Wednesday, and there's a meeting on Thursday that will hopefully approve a $3 million application for American Rescue Plan tacked funds that can that will go directly to the capital construction of the Group Home and Hershield Center. So if we can get that public piece in place, I'm hoping that we start the new year with that in place. We've had incredible generosity from the private sector. We have about $7 million in commitments of our $10 million goal. So my goal would be to end this year in a place that we're feeling really awesome about. We can do this for our facilities. We can do this for kids. We're going to be around for a while. And we've already started building on on Van Black and Hirschfield, which is so exciting to go and see because... We have video of what it looked like before and you go in there and just the framing out of things. I'm like, wow, this is such a huge improvement. And the goal is to keep it feeling like a home, but also provide level of supervision and safety. Like we have ligature safe stuff in the bathroom. So the bathrooms are, you know, suicide safe, essentially. Mm. Trying not to make it feel like you're going to a hospital where you, so we have like dining area, but everything's designed to be very open. The way our facility was before is there's lots of places to hide. And with this changing need, hiding is really not good. You can die when you hide in, mm-hmm. in 
area. So it's fun. I go over there every week or so and go tour around and they have plumbing in there now. And it's just really exciting to see the opportunity and the, the resource that's getting created for our community because they think that a lot of human services in our community, I think, go underseen or undernoticed and are very quiet. You know, we quietly provide these incredible services, but I feel like this campaign has been an opportunity to talk about it and invite people that might not necessarily be able to or be using our services. Typically, people don't know us unless they're using our services. And I feel like it's important for the community to know that they've the community has created this resource, not TYFS. And I say that we, we wouldn't be here if our community didn't value it. We have had enough things happen that the community has showed up for us and made sure that the financial pieces are there so that we can deliver the services. That's beautiful. How does your funding come through? Is it federal, state, and local? Or is it yes. just state and local? It's all. Federal, state, local, philanthropy. And okay. so what on all of that has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. Mm. We used to receive around 75, 80% funding from state contracts or services because the state doesn't have facilities like ours. They contract with nonprofits like us to provide. Mm. That's where the public-private partnership comes in. So they moved from funding us at 75, 80% to they're down to 20 to 30%. And so that gap that was created has had to be filled locally. And that has been through the town and county local governments really stepping up and through private philanthropy really stepping up. So that's why I say, you know, and the impact of the state funding cuts in other communities is way different for them than it is, you know, like we are lucky to live in Jackson and have this resource of a really affluent community that understands the value of the services. That's not the case around the state. And what I'm seeing with our partners is just, Really, the, the shift is going from the state is really saying this local people, if you want these resources, you're going to have to figure it out, which has been something that we definitely have been. I've been working with our association on helping to change because I believe mm -hmm. we have a role, not just them pointing their fingers at each other. It's we all are responsible to take care of kids and families, not just one group. Right. And, and so what's the struggle with? organizations like yours in the rest of the state where there's not the affluence that Jackson has? They don't, a lot of them don't have the town and county local government support because they don't have the tax base that we have. Mm -hmm. And they also don't have the, the philanthropy that we have. And I, you know, I talk when I'm at, I was just at an association meeting earlier this week and I talk about like, we're kind of the, the outlier in what's really happening. What's really happening. Well, and that's, that's not totally true either. Like, Services are getting cut and their availability is dwindling. And what's happening is that the state's seeing some really, really high level kids that there are no services for because we've let the system dwindle. So now we're created these all these high level kids that we've identified cost about a million bucks a year to serve, don't have the services. And there's going to be more if we don't start trying to keep kids in group homes, keep kids in residential treatment, keep them in child advocacy centers, because what is ending up happening is kids are going so far the other way that they have to be in such high levels of care that it's very, very costly. And it will be a lifetime of that if we can't intervene sooner. So if, if we took preventative measures in action earlier, yes, not looking at it from a, I mean, it is finances, 
I mean, it comes down to that. It is. It's still the human, the, the human integrity. Completely. If, if we make the right investment now versus waiting to see, you know, that it's extreme and irre- irreparable. Well, and I think it goes back to you can't just serve the highest level need. Like then you're just going to create a whole lot of high level need. Mm-hmm. So prevention, like prevention, I feel like TYFS and all of our programs are prevention, even though we have residential treatment. What if 85% of the kids we serve in our residential programs don't go into higher levels of care, meaning they're not going to detention, they're not going to psychiatric residential treatment. We're keeping them from, we're preventing them from going to these levels of care that are extremely costly and extremely invasive to the family. And like as part of my SPET application, I had to do an avoided cost study and I estimated very, very conservatively. I think this number could probably be doubled, but very conservatively, we're saving about $4.3 million a year in avoided costs by providing the services through TYFS. Well, thank you to you and the board and all the staff who put forth that hard work every day. Yeah, no, I'm, I am the lucky one. I get to have this dream job of working with people that, you know, I, I stopped doing direct care because I was realizing I was starting to lose faith in humanity. And these people keep faith in humanity and are able to work in probably some of the toughest things you've ever seen and maintain a sense of humor and a life and a balance. And that's a real gift. Yes, it is. <laughs> because life definitely happens it does mm-hmm. and what it's gonna be sometimes it's super fun and exciting sometimes it's the opposite <laughs> that's right yeah that's so true so sarah i so appreciate your courage and you sharing the the road that you've been through and and what you do for our community if people wanted to reach out and connect with you what yeah. is a great way for them to do that they can email me or or feel free to give me a call too. My, I pretty much just run on a cell phone. So my, and I don't really care. I mean, as long as you're not calling me to sell me something. What is your email? Let's start there. Cavallero, C-A-V as in Victor, A-L-L-A-R-O at T-Y-F-S dot org. So that was S Cavallero at T-Y-F-S dot O-R-G. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. Well, I know that you have some important work to go finish up <laughs> to get your day going. And I so appreciate you taking the time to share yeah, your so journey. Email and reach out. I appreciate that. It's, I feel honored. You're you're very welcome. Well, I feel honored that we got to speak today and you yeah. share your story. Well, thank you. Have a good, great day, Sarah. Enjoy yeah, the weekend and enjoy this freshly falling snow with the family. Warming up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care, Sarah. Good to see you today. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. To learn more about Sarah Cavallero and Teton Youth and Family Services, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 221. Please get out there and share this podcast. Easy to do. You need help to figure out how to share podcasts? Reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or send us an email to connect at the jacksonholeconnection.com. My wife, Laura, love to you, sweetie, and my boys, Lewis and William. You bring joy to us every day and to me. 
Thank you, Michael, for editing all these podcasts. Folks, if you want to start your own podcast, get in touch with Michael Morey. He can help you out. His contact information is in the show notes. I appreciate you sharing your time with me today. Cheers till next week. And I'll see you right here for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.